Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. Recording from New York, I'm Evan Gottesman. And I'm Eli Koaz. Back from Israel. Yes. And today we are going to be talking about the merger of the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem into the auspices of the operations of the U.S. embassy, which is now... Newly moved U.S. embassy. Right, right newly relocated to Jerusalem. And to discuss this, we're joined by someone who has a lot of familiarity with the inner workings of American diplomacy as it relates to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and Jerusalem in particular. Elon Goldenberg is the policy advisor for Israel Policy Forum. He's also a senior fellow and director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. He's a foreign policy and defense expert with extensive government experience covering Iran's nuclear program, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the broader challenges facing the Middle East. Prior to coming to Sinas, he served as Chief of Staff to the Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations at the State Department. In that position, he played a key leadership role with the small team that supported Secretary of State John Kerry's initiative during the Obama administration to conduct permanent status peace negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, So, Elon, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Great to be here. So starting off, there's a U.S. embassy to Israel previously in Tel Aviv, now also in Jerusalem, but there was also a U.S. consulate in Jerusalem. What was the purpose of having this uh, separate consulate? So actually, so a couple of things. Um, The U.S. consulate, and it's actually not even in East Jerusalem, it's in West Jerusalem, but right near the border, right near the border on the Green Line. Um, what the role of the consulate traditionally has been is, one, to offer consular services to anybody, Palestinians, Israelis, uh, Americans, anybody who needs consular services, whether it's visas or, or you know, American citizens in Jerusalem in the area around that. Like, that's one part of the job, which is a normal thing that pretty much all consulates do. You know, they offer those services. Um, but the second thing, and this was what made it really special and unique, was... From a political perspective, uh, the consulate's job was to engage with the Palestinians on political questions. So um, the consul general in Jerusalem uh, was actually really the closest thing we had to an ambassador to the Palestinians. He or she's job was not to engage with Prime Minister Netanyahu or all the other officials in the Israeli government. In fact, they really didn't engage with them almost at all. It was exclusively to engage on the Palestinian side, um, with President Abbas, with the people around uh, him uh, and their leadership, and also with the Palestinian public, uh, with everything from doing all the things an ambassador would do, public events, meeting young people, promoting business, engaging in diplomatic negotiations. Um, And so this was a really unique arrangement. There's only a, well, actually what was really important about it too was this consul general did not actually report through the American ambassador in Tel Aviv, now moved to Jerusalem, back to Washington, right? The American ambassador was responsible for engaging with the Israelis. The consul general was responsible for engaging with the Palestinians. Both of them reported directly back to Washington um, and gave that analysis to the State Department so that the State Department could, you know, if you're sitting in the State Department in Washington and something happens, uh, you get both sides of the story. That prevented, I assume, 
kind of the development of a groupthink in, in the State Department from hearing only one side of the narrative. Exactly. Um, I actually sometimes jokingly refer to it as, uh, you know, if, if Israelis and Palestinians are a part of the world's longest divorce negotiation, which is somehow how I describe what we're trying to deal with here, two sides separating from each other and trying to figure out how to live with each other in the long term, uh, the consulate and the embassy were sort of like the best friend couple of the divorcing couple, which each side only talks to one of the, you know, like to one of the one of the divorcing couple. And then we would get everything back in Washington and we would have to figure out what to do because something would happen and you get two entirely different stories. Um, you know, Palestinian is killed in the West Bank or there's a terrorist attack in Israel. Um, you would get two very different stories about the perspective of what happened from the two sides. And sitting in Washington or in the special envoy's office, your job is to figure out, okay, like, how do we navigate this and how do we try to deal with both sides? And this is pretty standard also for a country to have a separate liaison to the Palestinians. I mean, a lot of the other, uh, a lot of other countries, including a lot of major powers, Germany, uh, Britain, Russia, China, have separate offices um, in the Palestinian territories, correct? Yeah, absolutely. A bunch of them have their offices in Jerusalem and then put the embassies in Tel Aviv. Another, and then a, a bunch of others also based in Ramallah. Um, and the thing is, so this is normal. This is what most countries do at this point, dealing with Israel, these big countries, uh, dealing with Israel and the Palestinians. Um, it is unique in that there's only a couple American consul generals in the world who have this arrangement where they go directly back to Washington. I think there's something in like, Hong Kong or Macau, where they don't go through Beijing. But that might be it. Um, so it's, it's a relatively unique arrangement, but it's because um, it's a very unique situation. So, so this is pretty much kind of, it's the closure of what was the de facto Palestinian, I guess you could say, embassy. Um, and it comes after Trump, I mean, famously said that he's taken Jerusalem uh, off the table after the the embassy was relocated from Tel Aviv. So what does this say about the administration's goals for the region? Does it is it just a way to strangle the Palestinian authority, authority and kind of push them into a corner to uh to come uh to negotiate the negotiating table or does this say something about a long-term vision that could eventually lead Israel to a to a one-state reality. It's complicated to understand exactly what, is, what this means. I mean, it means a lot of different things. For one thing, they are keeping a unit called on Palestinian affairs and subsuming it under uh, the U.S. ambassador. So they're not totally eliminating this, but they're now what happens is all of that reporting will have to go through David Friedman, who has a very particular view on the world, uh, a pretty, you know, heavily weighted towards the Israeli view on the world. Um, it's not just the, any Israeli view. It's the Israeli right to the settler movement. Now, for any message back to Washington on the Palestinians to have to filter through him, uh, I think Washington will be getting a different story. Um, at the most, and, and Eli will get to sort of your question about what it means for long-term administration policy in a second, but I think the biggest impact that this has is a symbolic impact. Because the message to Palestinians is you don't have your own embassy anymore because we don't think you're going to have your own state, right? I mean, that's fundamentally the message. Uh, and that's a terrible message to send to them, especially right after we also uh, closed the PLO mission in Washington. 
It's the end of viewing them as a distinct political entity separate from Israel, whether now exactly. or in the future. Exactly. That's at least at least the, the, the issue is the U.S. government is organizing itself to not view them as a distinct political entity. Whether that means the end of the two-state solution or not, it probably doesn't. It doesn't mean you're not necessarily pushing for two states. But the signal is we're not organized to aspire to this two-state reality. We're organizing ourselves as though we're planning for a one-state reality. And is there no chance that this is a, a tactic by the U.S. administration to try to put pressure on, on Abbas to, whether it's to do something with, uh, with Gaza or to do something, like to join uh, the talks of a ceasefire uh, with Egypt? Could it be a way of kind of trying to strangle the Palestinian Authority and keep on taking things away until they... I mean, I think it would be a horrible strategy, but is it too yeah. much to expect that there is some kind of thinking behind this? Yeah, well, actually, I think it, that it might very well be that, Eli. I do think that there, there's a sort of fundamental theory of the case the administration has now. And that theory of the case is, this is all the Palestinians' fault. Okay, Everything is the Palestinians' fault for the last 50 years. They have they have not missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're just going to take things away from them. Like you said, we're going to squeeze and pressure them as much as possible and demonstrate to them that they have no choice but to uh, basically come to the table and accept the Trump administration plan. Even if that plan is completely anathema to their interests and is not one that their public would be willing to accept. Um, the problem with that approach is that they do have an alternative. Right. The alternative is just to, to walk away altogether and to say we don't want two states. You want one state? Fine. We want one state, too. This is a civil rights issue. This is a human rights issue. You know, give me a good job. Give me a passport that works. Give me an iPhone that works. Give me one vote in my state. You can call it Israel. You can call it Palestine. I don't care. And if that's the scenario we end up in, uh, then I think that the long term implications for that for Israel are terrible. Um, and, and it leaves Israel with just terrible choices. But I feel like that's where we are going if we just keep taking things away from the Palestinians and putting them in the corner. Right. And, and that kind of leads me to a question about where it leads the United States, because this is being done under the auspices of a very right wing administration, like we discussed, specific to the Israel issue, David Friedman being aligned with the settler movement, certainly in his capacity as a private citizen, what a future U.S. administration does, whether they're a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, a future administration could say this, you know, lays the groundwork for a one-state model, kind of from the Palestinian angle that you were discussing, and just keep the model the same. I, I wonder, you know, what you think about whether a future administration is really going to see rolling back these changes as an imperative or whether they're just going to become the new normal for American diplomacy in this area? So I think a lot of them will be rolled back in a democratic administration, but I think some of them are going to be really difficult. I mean, I don't think you're going to move the embassy out of Jerusalem, for example. Um, so you might just need to figure out what to do, what kind of equivalent political give you can give to the Palestinians to balance that out, which I'm fine with. I'm, I've always argued it's fine to have an American embassy in Jerusalem, but you should maybe have two embassies in Jerusalem, right? One for the Israelis, one for the Palestinians. Um, that would be a, a reasonable signal to send. Uh, so 
I think some of this will come back. I do think it says something broader about the U.S. role as mediator overall. Um, you know, it's the, the, historically, the United States has, has been really the firefighter, right? Even if we can't get these guys to come to an agreement, the least we can do is prevent really nasty things from happening and escalating by trying to restrain all of them. And instead of firefighter, in the last year, we've basically turned into arsonist. We're actually egging them on. We're taking steps that are purposefully provocative on all sides to making things worse. And I think that fundamentally undercuts our role. If we're going to be the mediator in the long run, um, we, can't, we can't be doing this. And so I think increasingly what you're seeing is the Palestinians for sure saying the Americans are not a credible mediator anymore. Uh, and I'm not sure we're ever going to get back to a point, and maybe that model hasn't worked. I mean, look, the reality is it hasn't worked for 25 years under Democratic and Republican administrations of us being the primary mediator. So maybe we need to rethink that overall. But Trump administration is certainly speeding it up. Definitely. And I think this also, um, this move in particular, it has kind of, uh, I mean, we're talking about, we talk a lot about creeping annexation and stuff that is done kind of under under the radar, whether it's investing uh, large amounts of money in improving uh, infrastructure deep in the West Bank, uh, roads, building isolated settlements. This is something that kind of like being in Israel, it barely made the headlines. Nobody was speaking about it because it just seems like a small administrative change. They were in Jerusalem anyways. They're just going to a different office, like moving offices mm-hmm. kind of. So it's something that's kind of below the radar of the public, which I think even makes it more, more, more concerning. Yeah, absolutely. It's exactly one of those. It's a good analogy. It's like one of these low scale moves. But, you know, if you systemize it over the next two or three years, whatever new administration comes in is going to have a very hard time getting, uh, you know, sort of that that balanced analysis that you're looking for on this question. You know, even and even it, like like just thinking about some practicalities. You know, you down you downscale the council general job now, right? So you'll probably make it less senior position. So who's going to want to have it? Somebody who's not necessarily as equipped or as capable of engaging with the Palestinians. You're going to put it under the ambassador. You might just get to a moment where, you know, it, so you're going to have a big brain drain away. Like Jerusalem was used to be one of the most interesting and appealing embassies to go to or or posts to go to as a consulate, you're probably going to have staff less interested in doing that in a scenario where it's under the Israeli embassy or the American embassy in Israel. You're going to have less people there. You're going to probably make it smaller. You know, the administration says it's for efficiencies. What it's really going to do is take away capacity to understand the situation. And that doesn't just come back. You don't just snap your fingers on January 21st, 2021 or January 21st, 2025, uh, and put this back together. So, so that I think the long-term consequences, it's going to take us a couple of years if, if they really go pretty far in deconstructing all this in the next couple of years. Right. And you have to take it in, in the context of everything else the administration has done, because in Eli, you said by itself, it, it, it's an administrative switch or, or something small scale. But um, like you said, Elon, switching things back overnight isn't going to happen because this is just one part of the entire policy menu that they've laid out of, you know, cutting off the USAID money, moving the embassy, cutting off the UNRWA funds, and so on and so forth. Yeah, there's actually something else, too. Um, Look, part of the... (coughs) 
um, ambassador's role, I talked about it a little bit, is public diplomacy, business generation, you know, things like that. Going out, engaging with community leaders, engaging with um, business people, trying to get American businesses to invest in all these areas, right? And so when you had the consul general and the ambassador split, you know, it was very clear that the consul general's job was to do that with the Palestinians and the ambassador's job was to do that with the Israelis. Um, and they worked at sort of similar levels. So what are you going to do now? Is the American ambassador, is David Friedman going to spend 50% of his time engaging with Palestinians? Uh, probably not because they're not going to want him to because they're not going to talk or meet with him. Or if he, but, if he even wants to also. Well, he doesn't. Exactly. That's part of the other problem. And so what are you going to do? Are you just going to – they make up 50% of – basically almost 50% of the population of the territory between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And so how are you – are you just going to ignore the Palestinian Arabs or just treat them differently and not give them the, nearly the same level of engagement as you do the Americans? I, it creates some ugly precedents and some ugly situations on all of this you know, beyond just um, – just a political question. What has the response of the Palestinian Authority been to this move? I think it's just they've disconnected from the administration altogether, and this is another piece of the puzzle. I mean, on the scale of things, um, like you said, this one doesn't generate the symbolism in the news that, say, moving the embassy does, right? Um, so the, the response has been kind of, you know, the usual what you would expect. Um, but but it hasn't really moved beyond just criticizing the United States um, and just, again, saying we're not going to meet with the United States. We now haven't had meetings between senior Palestinian officials and American officials in nearly a year, except for some, some security coordination meetings a few months ago. But that's basically it, like nothing at the political level since December. And so you start to question, does, does America have the credibility to be the mediator when one side in the conflict won't even talk to them. That's a pretty bleak outlook on that. Um, but it, it's, it seems to be where we're heading. Is there anything that you can tell us to, uh, is I, more optimistic? I'm at a loss that for words to try to, to even describe the concept of optimism on the subject. Well, I mean, look, more broadly, I would say, look, I spend my time trying to pursue a two-state solution, so do the two of you, right? Um, and why do we do it? We do it because it's really the only viable alternative that we see that works for everybody. It's the best for Israel's future. It's the best for the Palestinians' future. It's the best for the United States. Um, and the, the only what, what makes me optimistic is still the fact that there are no other real credible alternatives, right? So... People keep coming back to it because they can't figure anything else out. And so in the scale of things, uh, you know, this move on the consulate is a bit just like kicking the Palestinians when they're down. It's not – and it does in terms of how the U.S. organizes itself. It's a big – I think it's a big problem. But it's just another, another kick. So this doesn't fundamentally shift – you know, everything in the way, for example, the Jerusalem embassy moved it. Um, but, you know, I still go back to like, I guess, you know, I, I always go back to this story when I'm looking for optimism of my experience working for Kerry, where 
even trying to get negotiations started, like right after I joined, uh, and he was in Israel and Jordan and the West Bank just again and again and again in the very first few months of his time as Secretary of State. And, you know, he was basically on his last trip, and it all looked like, like it was going horrible. And he basically said, if it, we don't restart negotiations, I can't come back, I'm done, I'm going to do other things. And literally 12 hours before we ended up with a breakthrough, uh, I'm sitting there thinking, there's no way this is going to work. Why did I come to do this crazy job? We're just completely stuck, and what a disaster. And then in 12 hours, somehow the Israelis and Palestinians managed to come to some kind of agreement to restart negotiations, um, which is just my way of saying is you never know with this crew. <laughs> and you have to keep pushing. And maybe, you know, you never know. Maybe stars align, things change, politics change in Israel, you know, in Palestine, in the United States, you know, I, I, that, that's my optimism. Yeah, and I think on that point, I mean, we've had almost two years now of the combination of the most right-wing government in Israel's history and the most uh, right-wing on Israel government uh, in the history of the United States, and we still haven't seen, like, real significant changes on the ground we haven't seen like in terms of settlement construction or in terms of annexation we're still pretty much at the point that we were we were when Trump was elected in terms of feasibility of two states yes the embassy move has made things more difficult but we have midterm elections coming up we also have probably elections coming up in Israel and the government can't I mean Bibi could be reelected but there's a big chance that there could be a unity government. And there are a lot of things that will change this dynamic. And if after two years of the worst possible, quote-unquote, uh, and we're still roughly not that far from where we left off, then I think that's cause for uh, reason for optimism as well. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's exactly, that's actually, that's good. Eli, you're making me feel, uh, you're making me feel better about all of this. <laughs> so the, the, the best you. the best case scenario is that the worst case scenario hasn't turned out to be that bad yet. Yeah. Or it's turned out to be bad, but it hasn't destroyed the possibility of a two state solution. There 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 we go. And uh mm-hmm. on that cheery note, Elon, thanks for speaking with us today. And we're gonna continue to see how this plays out and we're we're gonna keep up uh fighting the good fight on this issue. So yeah. No, my pleasure. It's great, uh, great talking with you guys. That was Elon Goldenberg. He's policy advisor at Israel Policy Forum and a senior fellow and director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. He also has a new article in Foreign Policy Magazine, co-authored with Hadi Amr, about the closure of the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem and its merger into the operations of the U.S. Embassy to Israel. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum's work on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, and on our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>